0: You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 207. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Yelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. See us talk! Hey Saraisam! Hey, Hello! Ooh. So the three of us back on the same episode together—amazing stuff.
1: It never happens anymore.
0: <laughs> well, I'm—I'm I'm not sure who. Uh, remind me who the one was to move right across the globe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, on a different topic. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> shall I kick off by saying that I want to circle back to?
0: Being really wrong.
1: My excited, excited, <laughs> my excited rant mm-hmm. about ocean cleanup company. The fact that I, like everybody else, have not done my research. <laughs> 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 but but uh, having been an on again, off again kind of listener of Joe Rogan podcast, I did not have high expectations from the guests he brings in. They often kind of, you know, comedians, shooting breeze, blah, 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 you know, now and again, he'd have a a politician on. Anyways, and this time around, I came across this wonderful guy, or so he seemed, called Boyan Slut. I've never heard of him, by the way, before, before before Jay Rogan Hmm. podcast. He was something different, a young guy who took on a task to clean up the rivers and oceans of the world from all the plastics. Ah. It made me feel so good. Here I was thinking the world is going down in smoke. Um, he was an awesome guest, you know, young, ambitious, humble. He had enough energy to keep going with his idea, keep raising funds, keep getting people excited and invested until he finally overcome all odds and got his first interceptor, which is what he calls the machine that cleans the plastic from the water. The future looked bright. It is very hard to see anything good being done by anyone anymore. I mean, Greenpeace, remember guys, It's all started really well. It turned out to be yet another dogmatic organization with some really far reaching, crazy dogmatic ideas. More Peddling nons- <laughs> nonsensical claims, including but not limited to a campaign against GMOs. But you know, we're not going to go in there. Big charities falling off the grace quicker than you can say philanthropy. <clears throat> English being not my first language. I can't really say it very quickly at all, but anyways. (laughs) In fact, a lot of people in power were abusing that power left, right, and center. Not that it is a new concept, but I think the scale is now so big compared to previous generations. And there he was. So I just, you know, the young and innocent and eager to save the world. And also, (laughs) as it turned out, very ill-informed. Yeah. about all things that relate to ocean and ocean life. He did not consult with any marine marine biologist on the matter, nor any other researchers. Uh, he was able to prove that his structures will not harm ocean life because they would not harm any big ocean life, which is what the governments normally care about. Creatures like dolphins, fish, etc. Essentially, he was able to prepare a report that would suit the government purposes to give him the green light. He got a go-ahead permission for this project, ignoring that in the process, millions of small organisms, jellyfish and countless amounts of fish eggs and plankton will be basically caught in his net that floats in the first kind of layer, the top layer of the ocean, and be wiped out in the process. So he created this awesome way to clean up the ocean and destroy whole ecosystems at the same time. What a gigantic mess it turned out to be. So what's so fascinating and Also, at the same time, horrifying is the fact that it will be very hard to stop him now that he gathered the momentum and support of so many people, including me five minutes ago. And I am absolutely sure he was coming from a good place in his heart of wanting to actually do something about saving the world. And this is one of the most starking examples of saying the road to hell is paved with good intentions, or in our case, the road to extinction of a lot of marine life paved with good intentions. Hmm. (laughs) So, what have I learned today? (laughs) (laughs) You're doomed if you do, and you're doomed if you don't. Every single action will have a ripple effect, and sometimes the effect is catastrophic. We will see how it all plays out in the years to come, uh, as there are more and more of these interceptors around the world, because he, Boyan Salt, and his company are steaming ahead, raising money, and planning to implement hundreds of interceptors around the world, cleaning up plastic and ocean life with it. Unfortunately, the the rate with which the interceptors clean up this plastic is so small, it's 0.01% of all the plastic that is being cleaned, that it will not make a dent in the overall plastic pollution for the ocean, but it will wipe out ecosystems in the process. Although on the surface, the effort looks great. Especially for somebody like me, you know, somebody who sits at home and doesn't have solutions. And you see somebody across the road and and this guy made so much uh, more effort and came up with this amazing idea. And so it was almost like a leap of faith in a way, right? No research needed. You just go, yeah, great. The technology will come and save us. We don't need to change the way we behave. We don't need to change our own uh, thinking and attitudes. We can just ask some startup to fix it for us. And that's kind of the downfall of human nature in a way. So although on the surface the effort looks great, expensive, slow, and harmful. That is not the slogan that Ocean Cleanup is looking for, but... Although um, I am super disappointed in this, I'm grateful to our listeners who brought it to my attention, because it highlights just the pure, the desire to believe in something, on someone that who, who will come and save us all. But I think what's important to remember, if it looks too good, it probably is mm-hmm. too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And so that is the case as well.
0: I think it sheds some light on a very interesting phenomenon. When people take action, it requires so much determination. And that that kind of determination, a lot of skeptics or most of skeptics actually lack in their lives because of the doubts that they have about everything. So if you're a proper skeptic who doubts everything around you, you won't be doing anything. I- imagine we wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for that specific leap of faith that you just mentioned, Yelena, We believe that there is a need for this. We didn't make a survey. We didn't commission any public opinion polling. We just thought that there was a need for this podcast. I mean, yes, we are being praised for that by our listeners. But of course, our listeners might be a bit partial to us so i'm just I'm just mentioning this as an example, but we well, we want a political change, for example. We want politicians to be on board with what the skeptics are after, but we cannot expect them to be as skeptical as a lot of us are or at least some of us, because then they would be f- so hesitant to to do anything because of all the uncertainties and the doubts that they have in a way. Some kind of belief in what you do is more important if you want to actually do something. And occasionally we see the examples of that derailing the whole project, like with Greenpeace, like with this guy. But I believe there has to be some kind of balance between the two.
1: Mm. Well, uh, luckily, what we do doesn't cost l- lives or destroy ecosystems, and what he we know. and what he embarked on really will have a real I- a impact on ecosystems. And you know, some might argue that they will restore with time, and it's still going to be better to have zero point zero one percent plastic less. Although that's pretty poor argument, considering how expensive this effort is, but it, yeah, it, it made me very sad because that was a, a perfect example of someone who was willing to put his life and effort and everything he got into this great idea of saving something that he thought was worth worth saving, and it was yet not not enough, not good enough, or or yeah. catastrophic, really. So if he, who I think he's he's a brilliant guy, very intelligent and very clever is unable to do this, then what about the rest of us? Because I think he's kind of in a 1% of the population who has the drive, has the brains, has the potential. So it almost makes me feel the opposite. Like he kind of restored the faith in humanity, but also (laughs) taking it away in a a different
0: way. Yeah, there's no such thing as a perfect effort and a perfect project. We have to accept that. I'm not trying to uh, defend him or defend what he does, but nothing is perfect. Look at the the Starling project by Elon Musk. Look at everything. So that you won't find anything that doesn't have a, a flip side. However, moving on, <laughs> gathering on a yearly basis for skeptics. I think it's it's a good thing. It doesn't really have that much of a flip side. The largest annual gathering of German skeptics, SkepCon, has been announced uh, with the program already available on the website, which we will link to, of course. The convention will be held in Berlin between 21st and 23rd of May, so it lasts from Thursday to Saturday. It'll kick off with a special entertainment event on Thursday, bearing the title Skeptical. Featuring half an hour long talks on science and critical thinking ranging in topics from climate denial, hate speech and conspiracy theories through homeopathy all the way to trauma therapies and ritual abuse. Among the speakers of the main programme there are household names, if we're talking about sceptical households, that is, like climate scientist Professor Hans von Stork. Professor Edzard Ernst, who's the leading expert on complementary and alternative medicine, as well as criminal psychologist Lydia Benecke, another name that we hear often from the German skeptics. If you speak or at least understand German, please check it out and try to make sure you register for the event. It'll surely be loads of fun, while also a highly educational experience. Mm. But it's not only the Germans. The fourth conference on science and pseudoscience in Spain will be held in Alicante between the 13th and 14th of March 2020. Mm. The whole program is not yet public, but uh, the registration is open. And uh, I think the info website will tell you more. And there is a a bit of a sneak peek into what's to be expected. But as I understand, the complete program is uh, yet to be announced. Oh, and of course, that will be in Spanish. So please Mm -hmm. make sure that you speak or at least understand Spanish before you register. Okay. But with all that good news, I think we should uh, crack on with the, uh, with the rest of the show. To do that, I'd like to invite you, Yelena, okay, to talk about something that has happened this week in skepticism.
1: Want to mention UFOs today? We haven't talked about them for a while. This is an <laughs> incident that happened back in 1986 on uh, 29th of January. And it happened in Russia in a city called Dalnigorsk, Primorsky Krai.
0: Oh, Where, well actually that used again. to be say
1: it again. <laughs> Dalnigorsk <laughs> Primorsky Krai. Oh. <laughs> this this used to be obviously a Soviet Union back back then. And the incident that I'm talking about, the UFO incident, is known by its name of Height 611 wow. UFO incident, because it happened near the mountain, kind of named Height 611, also known as Mount Izvitskova. The whole area is very remote, you know, not very many people live there. And what happened was that the reddish ball was noticed by the people who live in the area around 8 p.m. on that day, the uh, January 29th. Over a hundred people witnessed this ball in the air, flying around. <laughs> so that's quite a lot of people, right? You go, hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they described the ball as uh, 15 meters in diameter, and it was flying about seven to 800 meters above the ground the The account of how the ball kind of proceeded flying varies. Some people say it was erratically flying around. Some people say it was like flying in straight line and then started descending. But so basically, what happened? It descended at some point, and then as it got closer to the ground, uh, it kind of fell and exploded uh, in a flash, and there was like a, a fireball, and that was the end of that experience. Before the government uh, agents could come on a scene and ex- explore the scene, people who lived in the area, of course, they were there before them, <laughs> way before them. So they were looking at the remains of the object. I'm going to disappoint you guys. No green little people were found on the, on the explosion site. There were just bits of uh, debris, like bits of lead sort of that looked like uh, drops of silver metal were found around. A mesh of some sorts, uh, black glassy drop shaped. So when the government agents arrived, they took the tests and they packed everything and they bagged everything and they took it to the laboratory, they analyzed it. And so as they analyzed the remains, they realized that a lot of elements in those remains, they were not unknown, they were all known metals, but not found in that area. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of speculation, and this site became somewhat of a mecca for UFO fans who kind of follow these sightings, and people from all over the world still go there to that area. And I think it's one of the few places where the UFO was witnessed to have crashed and the, the actual remains were collected and kept. I don't think and I haven't found official confirmation from anywhere that nobody actually said yes it is an extraterrestrial and this is a this materials belong to aliens so nobody officially admitted that but of course speculations were made and people's um what is it when you use your imaginations were playing up and and there were all sorts of uh, scenarios but what was also very interesting to note because I personally don't think there are aliens don't judge me too harshly for that
0: oh you mean you mean aliens living in other worlds
1: if there are aliens who are living in other worlds they're not gonna care about coming to earth but anyway so um because i think i guess yeah the, the actual cosmos is so huge there must be maybe somebody anyway but what, so what was also worth noting that the Donetsk uh, region where this has happened, and also there were a lot more sightings of similar launches. So the Donetsk region is the largest boron ore deposit in Russia. So boron is a type of metal mineral that is found in environment and it's not precious but it's not found all over the world so certain places that mine it obviously have the advantage and it's got some sort of value in the world and so because it's the largest deposit in russia in the same area there was a a huge chemical plant built for processing of this boron And so what some people are uh, alleging that during the Cold War between Russia and America where America was spying on Russians and the Russians were spying on Americans that actually Americans were interested in, in all these type of areas uh, in Russia in, to investigate them so some people allege that actually this is American in- intelligence that was trying to investigate the area than the aliens and they were sending these balloon shaped sort of radar type systems to investigate that would suit and fit the description perfectly they, they would be small, they'd be you know, flying around and they would self-destruct as soon as they would be close to the ground so that you know not mm-hmm. to be captured by the russians and that you know i got to be honest that makes more sense to me than anything else that they were just little spy devices mm. it's still very exciting you know if i was there and i saw it i'm like oh my god i saw american spy device but anyways so that's what i wanted to mention on today's episode
0: Ooh. Thank you. Very good. Have I ever mentioned the story of a friend of mine who fooled half the country's um, UFO experts back in the 90s? (laughs) No, no. He's now an astrophysicist in, uh, I think, at Harvard, Smithsonian. But um, back then, we were going to the same public observatory on a a weekly or daily basis. And uh, he was very fond of uh, taking good photos. And and he wanted to... We had a large astrodome with a large telescope of three meters long telescope. And he wanted to take a photo of the inside of the astrodome. And, you know, the the astrodomes are a bit like uh, there is an opening on the side that allows you to peek through. Mm -hmm. And if you open that and you lit it from the inside and you start turning the Astrodome towards the camera and you use um, a longer exposure time, then you can actually show the inside of the Astrodome. Ooh. And that's what he tried to do. And it looks like you, you cut it in half. Mm. The thing, and you see see the inside of it. So that's what he wanted to do. But uh, they didn't get the lighting right at the beginning. And uh, he ended up with an overexposed photo at the beginning. But there was a figure that you could make out if you looked closely. The person who was actually moving the astrodome from the inside. And he threw the photo away. But another friend of ours, he saw the thrown away photograph... And he came up with the idea of trying to fool UFO experts. He made up a complete story and sent it to UFO magazine, which was very, very popular back then in the in the beginning of the 90s, and made up the story that he saw this UFO uh, at the side of the city and in uh, the suburbs, and uh, even the alien can be seen within the UFO. And they picked it up and they claimed that they had uh, done some research on it and analyzed it with the computers and and they they found that this is probably the best UFO photo ever taken <laughs> in Hungary <laughs> <laughs> and the story got picked up by many news outlets and then he came out with the story that uh, the the actual truth that come on this was fake this was a photo of an astrodome but i just overexposed it and i made up the complete story and uh, he, he wrote up that story and sent it to the, the essay competition of uh, a very well-known Hungarian science magazine. And that was how he got his prize from James Randi. So he, <laughs> there you go. The, there you go. the James Randi prize, the first James Randi prize went to him. I think he was the first. And uh, later, a couple of years later, I got mine f- for trying to find out that the truth behind uh, UFO sightings uh, and, and everything. But I think his work was brilliant. <laughs> that was amazing. Gabor Furies is his name. Never mind. So thank you very much, Yelena. Okay. And we're moving on to the next segment. So Pontus, I really hope that you have something to poke the Pope for this week.
2: Oh, yes. So, uh, it's going to be a bit of a follow-up. It's uh, now becoming a recurring topic that Cardinal <laughs> Robert Sarah, co-author of the book From the Depth of Our Hearts, the book that was written in defense of celibacy together with the former Pope Darth Benedict. <laughs> uh, Robert uh, Sarah doubled down on his position last weekend when he was interviewed by an Italian newspaper, saying, quote, If you weaken the law of celibacy... You open a breach, a wound in the mystery of the church. So, interesting use of the word mystery there. He also denied that he had in any way manipulated the 92 year old corpse of Benedict into writing this book with him. So, this is still a very hot topic in the Catholic Church. And we are of course waiting for uh, Francis' verdict on the celibacy question for the Amazon which he is going to write any week now. I wasn't aware but apparently this Cardinal Sarah turns 75 later this year and that means that he's obliged to formally hand in his resignation. As a cardinal to Francis. Oh yes. Because all cardinals must do that when they turn seventy-five. Excuse me. What's the lower limit of becoming a cardinal? Isn't it thirty or something? Maybe I I, I don't know actually. Yeah yeah okay. Check I don't know it. either. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But but very often when you do hand in your resignation as a cardinal, the Pope uh, rejects the resignation and says, no, you can carry on. And I think after you've turned 80, you can no longer vote, but uh, you can still remain a cardinal. But something tells me that he may accept Cardinal Sarah's resignation because already a couple of years ago, Francis publicly reprimanded Sarah for something that he had said. And uh, they have had other differences in the past as well. So we'll see. Speaking of Frankie and the people he appoints, or uh, do not appoint, some news outlets made a big hubbub about Francis appointing a woman to a high-ranking position in the Vatican earlier this month. Outrageous. Uh, Yes, a 66-year-old lawyer, Francesca Di Giovanni.
1: It's all about diversity.
2: Yeah. Yes. Exactly. She was appointed in the Vatican. Definitely. <laughs> she was appointed undersecretary for multilateral affairs in the Secretariat of the State, and that's good, of course, having a-, a woman there finally. It's reportedly the highest level appointment for a woman ever in the Vatican. But I'm here to remind you all that Frankie boy is still a misogynist. Less than a year ago, he actually apologized to a congregation of bishops that he had allowed a woman to speak in front of them and that's directly after she had held her speech he went up and apologized and that's really bad form i think he told the audience that feminism is just as bad as machismo and he assured them that uh, there's no major change coming to the church position on women and that's such an idiotic statement to be honest feminism versus machismo positive treatment of an oppressed group women in this case is not the same as positive treatment of the oppressors i.e. the men So, but we hear that straw man all the time not just from Frankie but from others uh, just remember that you can actually help elevating a group that has been oppressed without being accused of doing the, the opposite Yeah. All right, I have one more thing actually. Listener Thomas brought in with some more information regarding a Father Robert. Do you remember Father Robert? We mentioned him briefly in episode 200. His full name is Robert Balletzer and he's an American priest and he's now working in the Vatican. He's known as the Digital Jesuit and he's a former podcaster and a YouTuber. And he, we talked about him because he created a Minecraft server in the, uh, for the Vatican. Anyway, listener Thomas wanted us to know that this Father Robert seems to be quite a nice guy, after all, despite working for the church. For instance, in April last year, we talked about uh, Polish priests burning Harry Potter books. Well, apparently Father Robert made a thing at the time of buying these guys ebook versions of the Harry Potter books and sent it to them in the hope that they were going to burn their iPads. That was a good move, I think. (laughs) And there is another very cute anecdote about the digital Jesuit Father Robert. Apparently he and a couple of monsignors and a bishop that sounds that sounds like a joke to me, actually. Father Robert, a monsignor and a bishop steps into a bar. No, they didn't step into a bar. What they actually did was they played Dungeons and Dragons down in the crypt in the Vatican. So that that's fine. Uh, probably a very good place to do that. And uh, suddenly they noticed that they had a visitor. Apparently, Francis himself has a habit of wandering in the crypt uh, from time to time because he can do that with all the security nonsense and the D&D players invited him to join them in the game but he politely declined. So I think that's pretty cool to have on your resume that you once invited the pope for a game of D&D in the crypt <laughs> in the Vatican. So, <laughs> the crypt uh,
0: in the Vatican. So pretty yeah, cool where guy. Else? Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> pretty cool guy. So there's some fun stuff happening in the Vatican as well. Who
0: i wonder i wonder what the costumes uh might have been if they wore any ah uh, well because that that's how authenticity can be raised with uh with the <laughs> dnd right in the vatican ah yeah. <laughs> oh. all right thank you very much pontus all right for poking the pope once again and that means that we are moving on to discussing news And I think we cannot start with anything else but the latest developments in the coronavirus case. Mm. So while in 2019, the the most prominent emerging threats were considered to be measles and dengue, it looks like the one that keeps most of humankind on our toes this year will be the novel coronavirus originating from Wuhan in China. I'm I'm not sure I I pronounced the name well, Wuhan or uh, Wuhan or I, I don't know. But it originated from China, that's that's for sure. Unfortunately, it has the potential to become a global epidemic or a pandemic. And containing it uh, seems to be a challenge. Not, mm. not really seen since the 2002-2003 SARS outbreak that also started in mainland China, by the way. Mm. And from several aspects, it is similar to SARS. That is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome which had a total of 8,098 confirmed cases with a 9.6% fatality rate. That translates to a death toll of 774 people. It was present in 17 countries worldwide. With the new coronavirus, designated 2019 NCOV, at the time of the recording, more than 6,000 cases have been confirmed within less than two months of its spreading, out of which 132 have died since January 9th, Mm. when the first confirmed death occurred. And the world is in emergency mode now, as uh, the, the geographical distribution shows that as of now, 18 countries have reported confirmed cases, including France and Germany. So, yes, we are deep in this situation in Europe as well. The global effort, obviously led by China, is an amazing example of international collaboration, but containing it is not going to be easy in our globalised world. Drastic measures have been taken, including tens of millions of people in China being under lock- complete lockdown, etc. The efforts to stop the spread of the disease include a race against the virus in the form of trying to develop a vaccine. But according to a couple of social media posts... It is already available the vaccine, and a virus is actually patented after it had been made in a lab as far back as twenty fifteen mm. so according to them, it did not occur naturally; it wasn't originating at that food market where animals were sold uh, for food so the 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 well, the speculations refer to it being developed from SARS some trace it back to h1n1 and the imagination of those spreading misinformation doesn't seem to have any limits whatsoever. So factcheck.org made a list of the speculations and they also compiled some of the falsehoods about the death toll because a few of those claim that in fact tens of thousands are already dead And the overall count of cases is in the millions. But authorities, of course, want to keep this a secret. Mm -hmm. So, as usual, when the situation gets serious, speculations and the sense of being better informed than all the others start to spread like the disease itself.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I just want to mention that I am lucky enough to live in a state where when the first US case of coronavirus was announced in Washington state. Yay!
0: (laughs) Well done. Now, Congratulations. Now there is,
1: yeah, thanks. Now there's five altogether in America. So, um, I just want to add something. I don't believe the status has yet been announced as a worldwide emergency pandemic, blah, 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 blah. Because one of the reasons given by the um, World Health Organization people, for example, America is a good example. All five cases are known, all five cases are contained like in, in hospitals, and people are being treated. And so it doesn't actually spread as fast. So there is no panic yet on that level. I mean, in yeah. China, I think it spread fast because people kind of mingle with, with the families and things like that. But here, because it's been identified and contained straight away, it's easier to monitor. But we'll see. I mean, that's
0: uh, just- the, What's important here is that, uh, for example more than 40 million people have been in lockdown in in china so no one is coming out of those areas even public transport have been halted uh which is important it those are important measures but because of globalization people go on planes affected by the virus of course sometimes some of them and because it has an incubation period of two to ten days You can get on the plane without even knowing that you are infected this is why a global effort has to be made in order to monitor the situation of course that doesn't necessarily mean that the WHO will announce a pandemic it has to be more than that but for example the ECDC the European Center for disease prevention and control has published a risk assessment for Europe about possible future exposure that is being constantly updated. And it has been announced in several European airports that um, extra measures will be taken like uh, monitoring fevers, elevated body temperatures and stuff. So heat monitors will be put in operation. So it is quite a serious situation and efforts need to be made to counter misinformation as well because people have to actually adhere to the new rules, the new regulations when it comes to monitoring the situation. I just wanted to finish on one thing. The Huffington Post, for instance, published a rather well-written compilation of myths that need to be shut down in order to prevent the situation from getting worse. But (laughs) on a bit of a funny note, a couple of days ago, when the numbers were much less scary... Uh, Edzard Ernst raised a question on his uh, blog, uh, why don't experts consult homeopaths to (laughs) stop the disease? Because obviously we know know about a couple of uh, homeopathic um, practitioners who do claim that, um, homeopathy can even be used in place of vaccinations because it can be effective in stopping and preventing uh disease like that so yeah it's it's a bit of a joke but i'm afraid there must be people out there who take this seriously yeah so misinformation and falsehoods have to be tackled otherwise the situation gets even worse <laughs> But I, I see this global effort to be very comforting. I mean, in a way that I see that the international collaboration, how even the Chinese authorities work with other authorities all across the globe, I think it's a good example of uh, how, even though we have our differences when it comes to a situation like this, we can work together mm. as humanity as a whole.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All right, over to Sweden. My general impression is that Scientology is in decline. It's hard to know for sure, but Scientology has an increasingly bad and very well-deserved bad reputation. So much so, actually, that they very often appear under different names when they try to mm-hmm. reach out to people because it's not well. It's not good PR to say you come from Scientology or you are a Scientologist. Narconon is such an organization who says they are helping drug addicts and are trying to prevent uh, drug abuse. And there's also one called Say No to Drugs and many others. Now, Swedish schools have been targeted by an organization called RDS. It's a Swedish abbreviation, which translates to the National Organization for a Drug-Free Sweden. Already... Back in two thousand and eight, so that's twelve years ago, Swedish public television revealed that that organisation is actually a cover for Narconon, and therefore it is uh, driven by Scientologists. Hey, the RDS has been also criticised for what they are promoting. You know, in, in they've analysed what they're writing and what their scripture says, etc. It's very unscientific. In spite of that, Swedish public schools have been found to continuously hire them to come and give lectures for students of all ages. All in all, 130 different communes in Sweden, that's almost half of everyone that exists, have over the last 10 years paid invoices to this RDS organisation, both for lectures and also for printed material. There is a drug researcher from the University of Lund, very close to where I live. He's called Björn Jonsson. And we actually had him as a speaker in a Skeptics in the Pub uh, event here three or four Mm. years ago. But he has looked at the material from RDS and he says it's just bullshit, things that you can make up just by googling a bit and things that are blatantly wrong. Such as they are spreading the idea, for instance, that residue of drugs can remain hidden in your body for years and then be released again uh, later to make you high, even even if it was a long time since you took the drug. And that that's just a, a myth that is very well known and has been debunked many, many times. And these guys, uh, they are being paid with public money to come and talk to school kids. Uh, So I I don't think there's a lot of malice here from the public schools point of view, or I don't even think that they believe in Scientology. I just think that there's a lot of people locally out there who is ordering things and organizing things for the schools, and they don't have the competence to know uh, what they're buying or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, not having the competence in in what you're facing or what you're buying is uh, a common theme across a couple of news items that we have for for today. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are probably all aware that 5G... The next generation of wireless network technology is getting a lot of heat lately from Mm. uh, conspiracy theorists and science deniers, most of whom do not have the slightest idea of what they're talking about. But they're claiming it is the most dangerous technology out there and that everyone who says otherwise is in the pockets of big tech or big telecom or whatever large conglomeration they believe to exist. So, when the Advertising Standards Authority, the UK's independent advertising regulator, banned an advert earlier in January from a charity called Electrosensitivity UK, Mm. the shit hit the fan. As the name suggests, Electrosensitivity UK aims to provide information to the public on the supposed health risks of electromagnetic radiation. Well, running a charity by that name means that, well, you probably make too much of a fuss out of this uh, electromagnetic radiation risk question because it is uh, normally done by authorities, the risk evaluation and risk assessment. And even though 5G has repeatedly and robustly been proven to be safe, this charity's fear-mongering seems to have no limits. so much so that when the ASA, the Advertising Standards Authority banned their advert that claimed 5G to have adverse health effects like reduced male fertility, depression, disturbed sleep and headaches, as well as cancer. Someone wrote a post on Facebook that said, anyone seen this yet? The UK government in bed with telcos over 5G. Dreadful state of affairs. Ugh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is wrong on so many levels. Yeah. Let's start by making it clear that the ASA is not a government organization. Mm, first of all, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it is an independent body of self-regulation run by all sorts of advertising entities. So, they contribute financially to the running of this independent regulatory body. Their only connection to the government is that their code of practice is completely in line with relevant laws. Okay? So... Mm nothing else the facebook post also links to an article that was published on oye.news are you familiar with that that one no <laughs> it's so funny it has some weird marketing techniques about them, their their own brand their logo strongly i mean strongly resembles that of the bbc uh-huh. and their subtitle is real news and critical thinking. So that's what they go by. It's, it sounds all good, but when you browse through the website, your eyebrows start to raise themselves to such a height that they actually begin to leave your face. <laughs> why Why is that? Well, they have news, documentaries, or at least material they call documentaries, and a selection of audiobooks and favourite YouTube channels as well. It is all a gold mine for sceptics, I have to say. So... Please make sure you check it out. (sighs) Rich Planet TV, for example, that they recommend, that covers things that mainstream television doesn't do. Uh, Serious Disclosure by serious i mean the the star not being serious about mm-hmm. it so serious disclosure tells you about the visits of interstellar civilizations and the list goes on the documentaries range from holocaust denial through anti-vax to nine eleven conspiracies so you get the idea of what News is all about so, the point is, the link added to the Facebook post that was shared hundreds of times from a 9,000 strong group called Weapons of Mass Destruction led to an article published on this website. Anyhow, Full Fact, the, the UK's independent fact checking charity, picked up on this and looked into it. So, they were the ones finding out that ESA indeed banned this original advert for breaching their advertising code. This was not the first time they banned an advert from Electrosensitivity UK though, but that's not the point. The banned advert opposed 5G in a way that it could mislead consumers into believing that 5G is actually a dangerous technology. And since the ESA places the burden of proving claims on the advertisers themselves, this was clearly electrosensitivity's wrongdoing, and it was dealt with accordingly. However, it it, it didn't come as a surprise that countermeasures were taken, as those emotionally invested in a belief do not take their pet ideas being banned from advertising very lightly. So there was a backlash after uh, the ban but uh it doesn't make it right so it it doesn't mean that uh claiming that 5g is dangerous holds any water it isn't it no. it has been proven to be absolutely safe and as a technology it's amazing what it can achieve so that's it
1: so Good news from Spain. Um, there was a manifesto organized by the group called APETP, translates as Association to Protect the Sick from Pseudoscientific Therapies. Hmm. So the, this organization has been established to do a couple of things. Uh, to make sure that people who are sick are uh, not taking on the ter- therapies that are not science-based. They also looking to discover the differences between the science and pseudoscience and uh, make it clear to the public. They also want to prevent pseudoscientific propaganda. And so uh, what they did, they created this uh, manifesto that we will link in the notes that... People can either support or sign. So the, the signing of this manifesto can only be done by anyone who is a scientific or a health personnel. So if you're like a scientist or work in the health industry, otherwise they appreciate the spreading of the word and uh, bringing attention to this uh, manifesto. And basically what it talks about is the fact that unfortunately, to the science skills, the claims that the homeopathy or any other alternative medicine cures anything has real ramifications and we know about uh, people using these alternative medicines instead of the conventional medicines shortening their lifespans or indeed dying from illnesses that could have been treated. The manifesto mentions a few cases of real people who have gone down those roads and we've mentioned countless times. They talk about the fact that the European directive has made possible the daily deception of thousands of hundreds of European citizens because they qualify these other medicines under the same umbrella. And I will quote from the manifesto saying that an influential lobbyists Uh, have been given the opportunity to redefine what a medicine is and now they are selling sugar to sick people making them believe it can cure them or improve their health this has caused deaths and will continue to do so until Europe admits an undeniable truth scientific knowledge cannot yield to economic interests especially when it means deceiving patients and violating their rights end quote so this manifesto is g- gathering momentum and it's actually been written in several languages including Russian by the way <laughs> which I'm super impressed one two three four five six in ten languages and uh, it's gathering momentum not just in Spain but around Europe or indeed around the world it's it's, it's in English so it, it reaches farthest corners We have mentioned uh, this manifesto in the past, and I'm bringing it up again today to the attention. Just note that that it's now gathered so much momentum and um, so much attention that even um, our friends at Science Based Medicine have published an article on this topic this week, which will give it yet another boost. Mm -hmm. So hopefully lots of people will sign up or health profession. Else will sign up for it and hopefully it will yield real change.
0: Yeah very mm-hmm. good Good, good. Lapping back to something that we discussed at the beginning of the show about uh, how good efforts can be derailed by belief. So the issues of uh, climate emergency, clean air and um, a healthy natural environment is something we all feel very strongly about. I mean who, who doesn't want to live in a green, clean, sustainable world? But we also often see examples of that drive being so strong that even facts and science can suffer in the process of uh, of making a change. Unfortunately, this is why green activism tends to raise some eyebrows among skeptics, Greenpeace being a particularly clear example of that. And now, after the municipal election some three months ago, in which the new Green Party politician Gergely Korachoin became the mayor of Budapest the capital of Hungary, Greenpeace seems to try and take advantage of the situation, so they outlined a the proposed strategy that the city should follow in order to become a livable, climate-friendly city by 2030. This document had been preceded by a representative survey among the citizens of Budapest, commissioned by Greenpeace, to to find out what the people of the city think are the most important issues. It was all conducted in the end of the year 2018 and came out with the results showing the greatest concern of the people living in the city was by far poor air quality followed by the lack of green areas and general cleanliness. Their ideas about uh, carbon neutrality and the use of renewable energy sources seem pretty down to earth so I shall not be talking about that. Uh, nor will I ponder on what they have to say about reforming public transport and traffic by banning certain types of polluters or making the city greener with more parks and grasslands while massively reducing communal waste, because they all make sense in a way. But there is an important part of this document, namely section number 3.1, that talks a lot about how they believe to improve the overall health of the citizens by providing better food products. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, how do you think they suggest this is achievable
2: <laughs> uh,
0: i don't know are we talking about gmo uh well gmos no. are not specifically mentioned No. Okay. but uh well they try to make sure that instead of extensive agricultural production organic farming is subsidized mm-hmm. in order to provide sufficient supply of chemical free Eco foods. <laughs> Chemical free. Wow. Yeah. So that is specifically mentioned in the document. So this is a good example of, of what we talked about at the beginning of the, of the show. Right. So mm. most of the document has a lot of. Valuable suggestions, things that actually make sense. And then they come up with this. They suggest we start by introducing these principles into the catering services of kindergarten, preschool, and primary school institutions. They also use a very shady expression food that originates from production in harmony with nature. Mm. Now, my problem with all this is that even though the idea of locally grown food products has merits, due to the reduction in necessary transportation that results in reduced emissions, this mystification of so-called biological or organic farming does not make any sense. Uh, (laughs) Organic farming has been proven to be much less effective and resulting in more produce going to waste, despite the fact that there are over 150 different chemical agents that can be used on on them without losing the right to be called organic, actually. Hmm. So that is EU regulations that allow for that. So what organic farming is, is just a marketing trick, Mm -hmm. the claims of which do not hold water at all. The problem is, yeah, (laughs) but but, 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 but as we see, the problem is that even if the science-minded lot are at Greenpeace, because I'm pretty sure there are those people within Greenpeace as well, if they decided that from tomorrow on they will adhere to base their policies on science, their followers would not appreciate it, as they're mostly ideologically driven. So, science and facts do not make them change their minds, so we're screwed. We'll see how much the city of Budapest will consider from their recommendations, but um, since uh, the mayor is a member of the Green Party, I ah. have likely, <sighs> yes, it's it's
2: quite likely that that a, a lot of it, a lot of it will be considered at least. Hmm. We'll see. Hmm. Okay, let's go to Germany or the rest of the world. Actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> lots of people are worried that stopping global warming is too expensive and that we will not be able to afford it. But there is a new study out of Potsdam Institute in Germany um, that looked into this and it was published in Nature on the 27th of May. The the study was partly funded by the Horizon 2020 Framework Mm Programme of the European Union, and it looked into the whole thing of the feasibility of stopping global warming from from an economic point of view. The researchers take into account... uh, Costs for damage due to increased temperatures, socioeconomic factors, climate sensitivity, and the costs for actions to limit climate change. They also based their calculations on previously done studies that have estimated the change in GDP due to changes in the levels of uh, the temperature. And the conclusion of the study was that limiting the warming to 2 degrees centigrade is the least costly alternative there is. The abstract says, and I quote, our results show that the politically motivated Paris climate agreement also represents the economically favorable pathway if carried out properly, end quote. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. If people argue that we can't afford to stop climate change, the reply is that we can't afford not to do it. Doing nothing is more expensive. And if anybody tells you different, they are not talking from a scientific point of view. Of course, there's lots of conspiracy theories uh, around this question, but the science is actually clear. Unfortunately, like so many other studies, I'm not sure how much this will actually influence what will be done, but it is getting uh, some attention, this study. And uh, again, we have a confirmation that we need to do what we need to do, and it actually is economically the best thing to do as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So action needs to be taken. To finish on, uh, I'd like to touch on something that has to do with the homeopathy. And uh, one of the arguments against homeopathy is that when it comes to serious illnesses, no practitioner in their right minds would prescribe these products. Hmm. Because they know that the use of an effective drug is required. So why would we use them for anything else? Uh, it's so not serious. But this opinion is not shared by all. Uh, One would think that homeopathic products cannot be considered by any as a viable alternative to antibiotics, for example. But one can easily be mistaken, it seems. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of last year, the Bavarian government even approved a major study to find out if the use of homeopathy can lead to a reduction of antibiotics in humans and animals. Uh... That was so wrong. That was and, and it was heavily criticised by the scientific community and even by some politicians. But a recent paper discussing a case series of female patients treated for recurrent urinary tract infections with homeopathy after all conventional methods seem to have failed is again stirring up some trouble in the scientific community. Of course, this didn't escape the attention of Professor Edzard Ernst either. Well. Four female patients were treated, and the follow-up period was a minimum of three years in the study. Oh, it wasn't a study, actually. It was just a paper outlining this case series. The documentation of the frequency of episodes uh, with urinary tract infection, as well as that of antibiotic treatment, was done retrospectively in validated questionnaires. Mm. So it was all self-reported. And I don't think any other detail is necessary to see that this is not a proper study. A case series like this can be used when a proposed new therapeutic method is being discussed, but when the efficacy of something as well known as homeopathy is to be assessed something more serious than than self-reported changes in occurrences of episodes for four patients over a period of three years or more are necessary so uh, it's it's like are you serious guys publishing something like this and and yet the authors one of them from the university of witten in germany uh, the other from the university of bern in switzerland concluded that Quote, this case series suggests a possible benefit of individualized homeopathic treatment for female patients with recurrent urinary tract infections. Larger observational studies and controlled investigations are warranted. Uh, Warranted, my ass. Yeah, uh, bullshit. It's just complete and utter BS. And public money should not be wasted on studies like this, or or studying anything like this, because it's so, so ridiculous. So please stop trying to replace antibiotics with homeopathy, people, because it's just placebo. Placebo is not sufficient to replace antibiotics. Mm. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) I think that was all that we wanted to discuss this week, in terms of news, but... Let's see if we can point at someone or some organization that has been really wrong lately.
2: All right, so we go to Italy. And uh, I'll start with a disclaimer here first. Don't take medical advice from your newspaper. You (laughs) did (laughs) not know. And this is a sneaky one because this article that I'm going to talk about almost gets it right, and uh, only if you read it all the way through, it fails. And uh, so, what am I talking about? I was looking through the health pages of a couple of big news sites in Europe, as I do, when I found an article in the Italian paper Corriera della Sera. The text and the headline seemed innocent enough. It was about advice for people with back problems, but the picture was a stock photo of a person receiving acupuncture. So I first thought, well, accidents may happen, and sometimes the pictures are not selected by the person who wrote the actual article. And um, just like the headlines very often are written by sub-editors and and can mischaracterize the actual text, so I looked into it. It was a rather simple article. It was a five-step recommendation to what you should do if you feel if you have a backache basically and the first step was if it is the first time you have a bad back it may not be a big problem said the article very often it sorts itself out and you may take a painkiller if you need it if you need to do that don't stop moving and don't give up physical activity and I think all of that is reasonable advice The step two was, if it comes back, if it's a recurring problem, consult a back specialist or a doctor to get a proper diagnosis. Still very good advice to me. Step three, how to deal with a problem that doesn't go away. Again, like step one, the first thing you should do is to uh, rely on your doctor to evaluate how serious it is. Perhaps it's enough to go to the gym and perhaps he will recommend... A physiotherapy or something. I don't see a big difference between step two and three, but still, fine. Go to your doctor. Step four. Your options. Here we go. Consult with your doctor again, well, still good, to see how you best can avoid drugs. Wait a minute. Of course, you should not um, take drug. Drugs. drug. Yeah. You shouldn't take drugs unnecessarily, but, but sometimes they're actually needed. But here it po- it turns out that what you need to do is to avoid drugs at any cost. <laughs> so I'll read on in the recommendations here. Your doctor will be able to assess if you personally will respond best to acupuncture, chiropractic or osteopathy. And that's the only options you have, apparently. <laughs> no drugs, just these three uh, pseudo therapies, And then, of course, they sprinkle it with a touch of victim blaming as well, saying that if it succeeds or not depends on the patient's ability to relax. So if these BS treatments fail, it's your own fault because you didn't relax enough. And then there's a step 5 about getting personalized exercises and perhaps uh, psychological help to cope with uh, chronic pain. And that's still, again, that's that could be a good uh, advice, but The whole thing with step four, that the only options you have is acupuncture, chiropractic, or osteopathy. And this is not the worst thing I've seen in a newspaper. uh, Far from it. And of course, I'm paid by big pharma, so I want everybody to take huge amounts of drugs instead. But really, really, this isn't good. And the worst part of it is, is I think, that Corriera della Sera normally has very sensible health articles. You can normally rely on what they're saying. On the same day that this was published, for instance, there was a a good article about why there are no superfoods and that you should just try to have a varied diet instead. And there's no problem with that at all. But this one article just propagates the myths about acupuncture, chiropractic and osteopathy, which is based in absolute nonsense. I should say that some chiropractors can actually be good, just as good as a physiotherapist, but then if you want that, go to a physiotherapist, because a physiotherapist's practice is not based in mystical subluxations and stuff. So again, I don't want to say that everybody should over-medicate on strong painkillers, but it should be acknowledged that sometimes it is needed. and. Um, it's, it's funny also that they say you should, they keep saying that you should refer to your doctor, but then in one step they are telling you exactly what the, the doctor is going to tell you, and he's going to tell you that you should avoid all painkillers. So, for promoting and giving credibility to the myths of uh, common pseudotherapies, Corriera de la Sera gets today's prize for being really wrong. And it absolutely sounds like something that is well-deserved. <laughs>
0: uh, this uh, really wrong prize. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And uh, I believe that is all that we had time for this week. But before we go, I'd like to ask for a quote. Yelena, have you got one for us?
1: I do have a quote. It comes from someone named Lyubka Cvitanova. She's a writer who was born in Katani, North Macedonia. And she said the following. The unspoken rule of democracy. Three stupid ones will always outvote two smart ones. I just thought it's very appropriate for <laughs> the current place that I'm living in, but also look at UK, lol. <laughs> so should
0: we, should we just give up on democracy? I think
1: so I I truly believe that that's we've kind of done that been there done that what's
0: what's your suggestion then?
1: Benevolent dictatorship
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay Uh, the problem is that the the moment you get to a dictatorship it's not going to be you who decides who's benevolent of a dictator and who's not so it's just a matter of luck if you're lucky enough to have a dictator who's benevolent then you're good
2: otherwise Mm -hmm. you're fucked also, also, I think even a benevolent dictator will not be benevolent for long after... Uh, that's right, I the agree The power with corrupts, that. so... Yes. I don't know. I think we're yeah, stuck so with democracy. Even are <laughs> stuck problem. with democracy.
0: <laughs> we just have well, to uh, find a way to make it work better. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I th- and I,
1: mm.
0: be mostly, well, science-based as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Okay. Anyhow, thank you very much, yellow And right. uh, indeed, thanks to both of you for joining thank me you. today. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Bye-bye. paka Bis This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by theesp.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, Please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, Follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how
1: you can believe Okay, I'm going to clap. Oh, what fuck, I can't clap. What oh. just happened. What, what, what was that? Because <laughs> I fell and I, I, my hands really hurt. <laughs> oh, my God. God I've forgotten. <laughs> because I don't normally clap at home. So. Yelena,
0: pull yourself together,
1: please. <laughs> Jesus Christ <laughs> almighty. Yelena? Okay. <clears throat>
0: Wake up, wakey, wakey.
1: Can I skip the rapist and talk about manifesto instead?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Of course. Go ahead.